What's up, Salt Company? Thanks for tuning in tonight. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Zach, and I am the Salt Company Director at the Michigan State University. To all the Spartans out there watching tonight, we miss you. Go green, go white, and go Spartans. And to everybody else watching tonight, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you're new to this whole Salt Company thing, uh, there are actually students from all across the country tuning in tonight from Penn State to Kansas to Wisconsin, Colorado, all the state of Iowa tuning in tonight. Uh, we are part of a family of churches called the Salt Network. I'm so excited and happy to be a part of this family of churches. And just want to say to everybody in the Salt Network, on behalf of the Commons Church in East Lansing, I just wanna say thank you so much for praying for us. To everybody who set their phone alarm to 10.02 and prayed that God would raise up laborers, thank you. Uh, on behalf of the Commons Church, we have seen God do an incredible work. If you're new to this, uh, the Salt Network actually planted two churches last year. One in East Lansing, Michigan State University, uh, and another at a school that nobody cares about. Just kidding, Florida. We love you, Stephen. Love you guys. So excited to be a part of this. We've seen God do an incredible work in East Lansing. Dozens of people coming to faith in Jesus, getting baptized in the name of Jesus and taking their next step with Jesus. So excited to see what God's going to do in this network at Bloomington, in Fort Collins, and even at Columbus, Ohio, at the most hated school in Michigan. So, so excited. It's going to be great. Hey, we're going to jump right in tonight. Uh, they actually, they have promised me a $30 gift card if I keep this under 30 minutes. And so we're just going to jump in. I'm not kidding. They're going to give me a gift card. So get a Bible. Go to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is where we're going to be tonight. Uh, like Abby said, we've been studying a series called Wisdom here at Somersault. And for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs. I'm going to teach uh, one verse tonight, uh, and Caleb Thompson, the Kansas Salt Director, is going to come and preach the rest of the book next week, so don't miss it. Tonight, the book of Proverbs, get to chapter 9. Okay, chapter 9 of the book of Proverbs. We're going to be looking at one verse, and really, in the book of Proverbs, there's a phrase that's repeated over and over and over again, and I want to show it to you tonight in Proverbs 9, chapter 10. And So this is what it says. Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And there's a phrase there repeated over and over again in the book of Proverbs over 18 times. It says this phrase, the fear of the Lord. Now, what in the world does the fear of the Lord mean? Okay, are we supposed to be afraid of God? Why are we supposed to be afraid of him? Why are we supposed to have the fear of God? What does that mean? Okay, and I'll, I'll try to illustrate it this way. I, I wanna share a story with you of the scariest haunted house I've ever been to in my life. Scariest haunted house I've ever been to. Plot twist, it was at a church. Okay, when I was in seventh grade, I was dating a girl, uh, which is dating in seventh grade, really dating? No, but I was dating this girl, seventh grade, and she asked me if I wanted to go to this church event that night. And I'm like, yo, I'm, I'm a church kid. I go to church events. This is what I do. So of course, I'm gonna go to this church event. So uh, I'm from Texas. It's around Halloween time. Both of those are pretty relevant to the story. Anyways, 
So that night we're going, we're driving to the church. Her mom is driving us to the church and we get there and uh, there's a long line going into this church. Now I've never seen a line going into a church before. So I'm like, hey, hey, what is this? And she looks at me and she says, it's a judgment house. I said, I said, a what? She said, it's a judgment house. I said, what in the world is a judgment house? And she said, you're gonna find out when you get inside. I'm like, yeah, if I get inside. So anyways, we're in this line. I'm trying to man up, trying to be bold, impress her. And so we get up to the front of the line and, she, and they make us sign a waiver to get in. Okay, now I have a general rule in life that if a church makes me sign a waiver to get into that church, I don't go into that church. But again, trying to impress this girl. So I signed this waiver, a 12-year-old signing a waiver. What 12-year-old signs waivers? Anyway, so I sign it and we're gonna go into this judgment house. And here's what happens. So our group, we go in to this uh, house and, and in the first room, we've got a guide who's gonna take us through. So we go in the first room and we're introduced to these main characters, okay? Like four high schoolers, two friends, and then you've got Amy, uh, she's the good girl, got saved when she was in middle school, she loves Jesus, but now she's dating her bad influence boyfriend, Jack, and, and Jack's telling her about this party, that they're gonna go to a party tonight, and Amy's like, I don't think we should go, but Jack's like, we're going, and so then you walk into the second room of the judgment house, Okay, you go in and, and they're at the party, man. They're living it up, they're drinking, they're doing the thing, smoking weed, whatever it is. They're having a good time. Okay, and then things take a turn for the worse. Okay, you go into the next room and as you're making your way like through a hallway to get to the third room, you hear like sirens in the background and a car wreck. And you turn the corner, you enter this room and I'm telling you, insane. People are screaming, the bodies hit the floor, there's blood everywhere, people are dead. They got in a car wreck, you got one girl screaming. I'm sitting here like, what in the world, what's happening? Why did you bring me to this place? And, and that's not even the craziest part. So you go through there, it's insane. And then, and then you go in the next room. Okay, in the next room, try to picture it. It's about half a basketball court, pitch black. And this room is hell. So you walk in there and, you're, and there's fire in the background. They're playing Nickelback. You walk in, you're like, man, what is going on here? I'm like, what in the world? I'm not holding her hand anymore. I'm freaking out. And then you've got these high schoolers coming. I'm 12 years old. These high schoolers come, they grab you. They're wearing hoods. They look like dementors from Harry Potter. They pick you up. This is why you signed a waiver. They pick you up. They take you to Satan. Okay, he's thrown. He's sitting there. He's got like a voice box on. He sounds like Darth Vader. And I'm, dude, I'm 12 years old. The scariest thing I've ever seen in my life, like traumatic. I'm thinking, I have got to get out of this place, okay? And literally, the goal of this house, the judgment house, is to scare the hell out of you. They're trying to scare the hell out of you. And they did it, bro. I'm done. Like, we're going to the next room, and the next room is heaven, okay? It's a, it's a white room. You've got God on the throne. He's an old white dude with a beard. He's probably a deacon in the church, and he's going to share the gospel with you, the good news of Jesus Christ, but not with me, baby. I'm, I'm believing. I'm getting out of this judgment house. We're getting in the truck. Her mom's going to take us home. I didn't say a word. Okay, the whole ride home. Broke up with her that night. I'm, not, I'm just kidding about that part, but we probably broke up a couple weeks later. Now, why in the world do I tell you that story? Well, first of all, I know my wife, Mally's watching at home and I just gotta say to her, hey, she may have taken me to the judgment house, but you took me to the altar, baby, I'll be home soon. Okay, why do I tell you that story? Because we're talking about the fear of the Lord. Okay, when I read that, first of all, I picture like God in heaven with lightning bolts trying to light me up, but, but what does the fear of the Lord actually mean? Okay, and here's what I wanna say about the fear of the Lord. Okay, the first thing I want you to know about the fear of the Lord is this, that the fear of God is not primarily about the fear of hell. 
Okay, the fear of God is not primarily about the fear of hell. I read that and I picture God in like this judge who's about to zap me up. But here's the deal. The fear of God is not primarily about the fear of hell. Okay, I had friends growing up in high school who called themselves Christians, who got saved at a judgment house, but really all they had was a fear of hell. Okay, and then two months into college, they're not walking with Jesus anymore because the fear of hell is a terrible motivator for the Christian life. Okay, the fear of God is not primarily the fear of hell. Okay, this is the first thing I want you to know, and this is the most important thing. We don't, the fear of God is not about the badness of hell, but instead the goodness of God. Okay, the fear of God is not primarily about the badness of hell, but about the goodness of God. Or in other words, we don't fear God because he's scary. We fear him because he's good. Okay, and that is fundamentally different. If you miss that, bro, this, this whole sermon's not gonna make sense. Okay, we fear God because he is good. And your view of God is extremely important. Okay, A.W. Tozer, he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about you. That your view of God is the most important view about you. And I think there's two ditches that people fall into with a view of God. Okay, one side of the ditch has God up in heaven, okay, the judge in the sky who's ready to unleash on you if you touch alcohol or do something bad. That's, that's one view, one ditch. But the other ditch is over here. And it's God is all love, okay? And Jesus is my homeboy. He's my best friend. But what I wanna talk about tonight is how do we have an accurate view, a healthy view of God? What is a healthy fear of God? That's what I wanna talk about tonight. And so here's, here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you a definition of the fear of the Lord. Then I wanna talk about how is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Like, what does that mean? And then I wanna talk about what in the world does this have to do with us in the year 2020. What's it gonna do with my life today? That's what we're gonna do, sound good? Okay, first, the fear of the Lord. I wanna give you a definition that I think accurately describes the fear of the Lord. And it's kinda hard to define, but here's what I think the fear of the Lord is. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. It's, it's super profound. Okay, this is what the fear of the Lord is. The awareness that God is awesome and we are not. Okay, the fear of the Lord is the awareness that God is awesome and we are not. Welcome to Salt Company, baby. God's great and we all suck. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. God is awesome and we are not. What does this mean? Okay, we sing songs all the time about God being awesome. Okay, our God is awesome. He can move the mountains, keep us in the valley, hide me from the rain, or our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. We sing these songs, but what does it mean that God is awesome? Well, I wanna break this definition down, the awareness that God is awesome and we are not. But before we talk about the awareness that God is awesome, first I wanna talk about the awareness that God. Okay, the awareness that God, or in other words, the awareness that God exists. Okay, a prerequisite to having the fear of God is knowing and having an awareness that God exists, like that makes sense. And, and here's why I wanna start here tonight. Because maybe you grew up in a church and you're about to go to college. Okay, your whole life, you grew up in a Bible-believing home and your family just assumed God exists. Like, duh, God exists. Of course, God exists. But here's what's about to happen. Okay, you're gonna go to college 
And just about every person you meet, every professor that you have is going to operate under the assumption that not only does God not exist, but that this whole world is a cosmic accident. Okay, that this earth is one big cosmic accident and that religious people are uh, weak and narrow-minded. And here's what I want you to know before you go off to college. Okay, that this big old planet of dirt that you're sitting on, with its capacity for life and beauty and order, it's not an accident. Okay, time and chance do not produce order. Okay, atheists would say it's time and chance, but time and chance never produces order, always produces disorder. For example, let's say I get in a room and I put a bunch of glass, a bunch of silicone, a bunch of plastic, and a nuclear bomb. Okay, and it doesn't matter how many times I set that bomb off, it's never going to produce an iPhone. Okay, it doesn't matter how many times I blow up those things, it's not going to produce an iPhone. If I put a bomb in a print shop, Shakespeare is not going to come out. Okay, the iPhone, this world, it screams, designer, creator, that there is someone behind all of this. Don't let your professor come and tell you this is all an accident. Bump that. Okay, this world screams, creator. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's where you have to start. But not only is there a creator, but a particular type of creator, that there's a creator and he is awesome. Okay, an awareness that God is Awesome, that's right. I drove eight hours to tell you that God is awesome. Okay, and I'm not gonna try to muddy the waters here. I'm gonna keep it simple. Okay, God is awesome. What do I mean by that? Okay, well, first of all, I think we use the word awesome too flippantly. Okay, we use the word awesome to describe literally everything. Okay, you got cat videos on TikTok, awesome. Hamilton is on Disney Plus and it's awesome. You've got new laundry detergent, bro, awesome. You broke up with your girlfriend, Man, awesome. We use that word awesome a lot and we use it to exaggerate a point. It's a filler word, I get it. We use it to say it's something that's really, really good. But that word awesome has a definition. Words have meanings. If you take away something, take away this, words have meanings. Now here's what I want you to do. Get out your phone or pull up a tab on Safari and Google the word awesome. Do it right now. Just Google the word awesome And look at the very first definition that's going to pop up. It's a dictionary.com. It's going to pop up right there on Safari. This is what the definition of awesome actually is. I'll read it to you. It says, extremely impressive or daunting. And then check it. Inspiring great admiration, apprehension, or fear. Okay, something that's incredibly impressive that's going to inspire awe and Fear, that's what the word actually means. Something that's so impressive that it makes you afraid. So literally, the fear of the Lord is about the awesomeness of God. It's being so filled with awe and wonder and reverence at a holy God. The fear of God does not mean to walk around paralyzed that God's gonna zap you, but instead to look at God and to be filled with so much awe and reverence at how big and holy and majestic he is. That's what the fear of the Lord is God is awesome, okay? And I want you to know that whatever your view of God is right now, like when you think of God, he is so much better. He is so much bigger, okay? I'm trying to tell you right now that God is awesome and I cannot even comprehend what I mean when I say God is awesome. That word awesome, we use it to exaggerate a point, but here's the deal with God, you cannot exaggerate. You cannot exaggerate the beauty and the wonder of 
God. I love what John Piper says. He, he, this is his quote. He says that God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. Okay, God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. It's not about us. It's about the glory of God. Okay, there's a reason you can't measure the universe. We cannot measure the known universe. It's immeasurable. And it's the same with God. Okay, we cannot measure God. We cannot comprehend God. To fear God is to be so overwhelmed with his bigness, his greatness. Okay, if this was fourth grade show and tell, the best thing that we bring is a rock that we found in the backyard, but God brings the entire freaking universe. That is the God we worship. He is the creator. He's not just your homeboy. He's the creator of the universe. And then in light of that, we realize who we truly are. Okay, the awareness that God is awesome and we are not. Okay, so often we try to make this world about us. We put ourselves at the center of the universe. But listen, the reality is this. Your life is a cameo appearance. Okay, your life is a cameo appearance in this story. Okay, it's not about you. Okay, God is the one that's awesome. I don't care who you are. You're not extremely impressive and I'm not afraid of you. Okay, you are not awesome. Only God is. This is the God we worship. And here's the deal. That's not to say that your life doesn't matter or that in Jesus, you're like not lovable or significant or you can't make a difference, okay? Contrary, in Jesus, you were made significant. Okay, it doesn't mean that your life doesn't matter, okay? To quote the greatest preacher of our generation, Solomon Eugene Rexius, he says this, that you matter, but your life's not the point. You matter, but you're not the point that your life is significant, but this, this earth, this universe, it's not about you, bro. It's about the glory of God. Okay, no one goes to the Grand Canyon, stands there and feels good about themselves. Okay, nobody goes to the Grand Canyon, stands there and says, I'm awesome. No, they shut up and they stand in awe of the massive thing right in front of them. It's the same with God. Okay, God is awesome. We are not. That's the awareness that God's awesome and we are not. That's the fear of the Lord. Like, okay, Zach, I'm tracking with you kind of, but can you show me in the Bible like stories or examples of the fear of God? Show me what it looks like practically. Well, well, all throughout the Bible, we see people who have the fear of God. And I wanna show you three people real fast. You don't have to turn there, I'll be quick. Three people in the Bible who had the fear of God. Okay, first, Isaiah. Okay, if you were at the Salt Company conference, you heard Jake Each preach on Isaiah. And if you don't know the story, Isaiah gets a picture of God. And he's so big that the fringes of his robe fills the temple and he's huge. And you've got these things singing, holy, holy, holy. The whole, the whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah gets this picture of God, this huge God. And do you remember what he said? What were, what were the first three words that Isaiah said when he got a picture of God? He said, woe is me, woe is me, I am undone. Or in other words, I am screwed, okay, I am ruined. Isaiah got a picture of God, this holy, massive, big God. And in light of that, he realized just how small he was. This is the fear of God in the Bible. And notice, Isaiah didn't get a picture of hell and say, woe is me. No, he got a picture of God and, and that's different. Okay, second, what about, what about Job? Okay, we've been studying the book of Job. Jordan Adams and Ryan Hamby did an incredible job teaching on Job. What happens with Job? 
that he gets everything taken from him and he, he basically cries out, God, why'd you take all my stuff? And then God shows up. And for about two chapters, lights Job up, okay? The one of the most epic rants in history, God comes up and he says, Job, where were you when I created this thing? When I laid the foundations of the earth, when I created the mountains and told the oceans to go here and not to go any further, when I created the animals, maybe the dinosaurs, where were you? He goes on this epic rant. And do you remember what Job said? Do you remember what happened? First, he says, I have spoken of things I should not have spoken. I should have shut up. But then he says this, I despise myself. Job says, I hate myself because in the presence of God, when you truly see who God is, you realize just how small you are. Okay, that's Job and Isaiah. What about New Testament, Zach? What about Peter? Okay, what's the story of Peter? Okay, he's a fisherman. He's out there fishing. That dude didn't catch nothing. But then Jesus shows up on the scene and, and he catches so many fish that the nets break, okay? And the fish or the boats start to break. And what happens? What does Peter do? He falls down at the feet of Jesus, shaking in terror. And what does he say? He says, depart from me, depart from me. Get out of my presence for I am unworthy. Peter knew that he was in the presence of an awesome God and he fell down in worship. This is what the fear of God is. It's seeing God for who he truly is and realizing that we're not the point. So that is the fear of the Lord. Now, how in the world is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Look back at Proverbs 9. Look at what it says. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is what? It's the beginning of wisdom. What does this mean? Okay, what this means is that in order to be truly wise, okay, in order to get to the first rung of wisdom, you have to have the fear of the Lord, or in other words, you have to know that God exists and that's his place in the world and you need to know your place in the world. You have to have the fear of the Lord to have any sort of wisdom. Okay, you can know everything about everything, okay? Have all the facts about earth and science and about political theory and underwater basket weaving. But if you don't know God, okay? If at the end of accumulating all these facts, you come to the conclusion that this earth is about you, bro, you missed the point. That is what he's saying. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowing who God is, is how you get wisdom. And here's why this is important for us. Okay, whether you realize it or not, the whole earth, the culture that we live in, the world is selling you a wisdom. Okay, the world is trying to give you a wisdom. Your, uh, your fr friends at class, your classmates, your professors, the university is trying to tell you wisdom, something that's wise, worldly proverbs, if you will, that absolutely do not take into account the fear of God. For example, worldly proverbs. Okay, this is silly. Nobody says it anymore, but you only live once. YOLO, you only live once. That's literally a piece of wisdom from the world. This is how you should live your life that does not account for the fear of God at all. Totally doesn't. What about this one? Follow your heart. You do you, bro. Follow your heart. That's a piece of wisdom from the world. But the Bible says, hey, don't follow your heart, question your heart. Okay, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? This is how you have worldly wisdom, but godly wisdom has the fear of God. This is how you get wisdom to begin with. It's the fear of God that's the beginning of wisdom. Now, here's what I wanna do with the rest of the time that we have left. Okay, I wanna talk about what is our response? Like, what is our response to the fear of God? How do we respond to an awesome God? Well, what's interesting is this. 
Most of the time with fear, our response is to do what? It's to run away. Okay, hungry lion in your front yard, you're running away. Okay, snakes and spiders, my wife is running away. Fear causes us to run away. But what's interesting about the fear of God is it's different. Okay, the fear of God does not cause us to run away in terror, but instead to run to God. Okay, to run to God in worship. That's our response. Not to run away from God, but to to run to God, to bow the knee and to worship God. That is our response to the awesomeness of God. You were created to worship. Okay, what's interesting about the Bible, it says you were actually created to worship, that you and I are created to find something and to worship it. That's what we do. And Isaiah 43 says we were created to worship God alone. Okay, these people whom I'm formed for my glory. Okay, we're created to worship God. Okay, but we worship other things instead. Okay, here's the deal. It's not, are you going to worship? The question is not, are you going to worship, but what? What are you going to worship? Everybody worships something. Okay, I don't care who it is. Okay, it could be your atheist buddy. It could be your parents who don't go to church anymore. It could be LeBron James. Even he worships something. And the Bible says that we have turned away from the God who we're supposed to worship and worshiped idols instead. That we worship idols. If you're sitting there like, bro, we don't, man, we don't worship idols. Like in America, 2020, we don't worship idols. They do that on the other side of the world. We don't worship idols. When I was in college, I went on a trip to Asia on a mission trip. And one of the days we went to this Hindu temple. Okay, and it was in this mountain. It was about 400 steps. You had to climb into this cave area, this Hindu temple. And so we're there, we're climbing the steps and, and I'm looking around. You got people carrying like sacrifices to go up to this temple and, and they're bringing their family, their kids to go and, and ask for a blessing. And so we, we get up this temple and we see it. We turn the corner and there's a bed, like a bedroom made inside this cave. Okay, you've got a bed and you've got all these things. And on that bed is a wooden st- like statue Okay, a wooden carving, an idol that all of these Hindus come to worship. And, and if I can be honest, I had like two responses to this. I got up there and I saw it and my first response was, man, this is sad. Like, what are they doing? What? This is sad. This is, they are lost. But if I'm being really honest, my response wasn't just sadness, but I looked at that and thought, these guys are clueless. This is the silliest thing I've ever seen. Why are they coming all the way up here to worship a piece of wood? It's the silliest thing I've ever seen. And if you would just stop and take a step back and think, you would realize that we do the exact same thing. That here in America, we also worship idols. We worship idols here, okay? We've we've just gotten better at disguising them. We're more sexy in how we disguise them. Okay, you may not worship a piece of wood, but you might worship a piece of metal that's in your pocket that you go to to find validation from people you barely know. And we may not worship a God of a fertility or a sex idol, but we do worship sexual pleasure through relationships and pornography and, and Tinder, which is on our iPhone and it's colorful and you can swipe, look at it. Okay, you may not worship a God of crops or the God of rain, but we do worship security and financial security and money. We do worship idols in America. We've just gotten better at disguising them. John Calvin, he says that our hearts are idol-making factories, that that's what we do. Our hearts are always creating idols. We're always worshiping things that do not carry the weight of our 
worship, money, sex, relationship, a wife. It's not created to be worship. Those are good things, but they don't carry the weight of worship. I think Ernie said this a couple weeks back about his wife. Hey, my wife, Mally, she makes a good wife, but a terrible God. She's not meant to be worshiped. Money's not meant to be worshiped. Only God is awesome and worthy of our worship. And so here's how I wanna close. I wanna ask the question, what makes God so awesome? Zach, you've been saying that all night long. Why is God so awesome? Well, here's the deal. I haven't even gotten to the best part yet. The best part of what makes God awesome because here's the deal. We relate to the fear of God differently as Christians. As Christians, the fear of God has been fundamentally changed. And I'll share this illustration I heard from a pastor. He said, imagine this. Imagine you and I are hiking Mount Everest. Okay, we're hiking Mount Everest. Me and you and your boys or your girls, we're hiking the mountain and we're doing it, bro. We're, we're hiking this thing. We're halfway up, we're feeling good. And right as we turn a corner, we see a massive storm in the distance. Okay, this massive, incredible, awesome storm is coming at us. And if it gets close, it's going to consume us like fire. It's going to kill us. And so we're hiking up this mountain and right before this storm comes to us, we find a, a cleft or a cave, a crevice in the mountain. And we go and we hide ourselves in this cave, this cleft, and we're completely safe, okay, completely secure, completely safe from the life-threatening part of that storm. But we can still look out into that cave, out of that cave and see this massive, incredible storm and be inspired to awe and fear. We're trembling, man, because this storm is incredible. We would not touch it. That is the perfect picture for what the fear of God is for the Christian. Because even though God is holy and just and beautiful, he has also created a way for us to stand in his presence, to be completely safe. And it's through the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is our refuge, okay? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Jesus Christ is our refuge. Okay, he's the one who protects us from the wrath of God. We can stand there in Jesus. He gives us feet to stand on and legs to bow down with. This is Jesus Christ. And this is how he did it. Okay, he didn't tell us to go climb a mountain with 400 steps to worship him. But instead, Jesus Christ came down from the heights of heaven to come and get us and put us on his back. Jesus put the team on his back. And he brought us back into the presence of this holy God. And he did so through the cross of Jesus Christ that our sins, your sins, my sins were paid for at the cross. Jesus went to the judgment cross. So we don't have to go to the judgment house. That's the good news of the gospel. He has died for us. No longer do we only relate to him as creature, creator, but as father and son, father, daughter. This is the good news of the gospel. And so here's what we're about to do. We're about to sing. Okay, that's what we do. Okay, we, we sing with a sermon, we pray, and then we sing. But before we sing, I want you to ask the question, why do we sing so much? <laughs> why do Christians sing so much? We're always singing. Christians for thousands of years, for 2,000 years have been singing. Why do we sing so much? Okay, more than any other religious group, we're always singing. More than the Muslims, more than Hindus or Buddhists, Christians sing. Why? Why do we sing? because our God is awesome. Let me pray for us.
God, I pray that you would, through your spirit in this time, give us a view of yourself. Give us a picture of God. Help us see you rightly, Lord. That you are not someone to be trifled with, but that you're the holy God, the creator of the universe, that the galaxies scream how awesome you are. And in light of that, God, it's not about us. That this life that we have, the 60, 70 years of our life, it's just a cameo, God. It doesn't, it doesn't count apart from Jesus Christ and the work that you will do. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so God, would you give us a vision for the awesomeness of God, the smallness of us, but Lord, will we worship you in spite of that? God, help us do that even now as we worship. Even now, Lord. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.